Let me tell you a story, podcast number 40. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago. Never mind it is a how truth long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. This podcast is brought to you by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Fireproofing Services. For those days when you just can't take the heat. Well, hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Just so you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have nothing to do with today's podcast. We just wanted to see if you're paying attention. Right, Steve? We don't want them to pay attention. (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, moving along here, our theme, loose as it is, is more about the ocean than fire. Today, I'll begin with a story by Patricia Watkins titled, Our Beach. Sparkling water, glistening, crashing waves, racing to the shore, hot sand sliding between delighted toes, suntan oil, sodas, and solitaire. It's summer again at the beach, our beach. The beach is ours because we live in a nearby town. The beach is also ours today by default. Others decided not to come. While we are among those who chose today is a perfect day to go to the beach. Tomorrow it will belong in the same way to a different mix of kids. Our beach is an equal opportunity beach. Our beach attracts outsiders on the weekends because it truly is a lovely spot. But on weekdays, It's just us local kids and a sprinkling of assorted moms. The moms may or may not be our moms, but it is tacitly understood that they will help us with any need or crisis that might arise. The moms, whether ours or not, can also be counted on to discipline us if we get out of line. If the infraction is significant enough, we know without a doubt that our own moms will receive a phone call after dinner detailing the misbehavior in no uncertain terms. We are mindful of that accountability and, for the most part, spend the day in well-mannered play. Our beach is a nurturing beach. Most of us get to the beach by sauntering down dirt roads from home in groups of two or three and crossing under the highway bridge. There is no need to hurry as we have all day and the beach is a patient playmate. We carry everything we need for the day in straw bags and paper grocery sacks. The necessities consist of food, towels, food, shovels, food, magazines, food, cards, food, and occasionally a hat. Once we stake out our spot for the day near our friends, some of us take a few minutes and strategically lay out all our provisions and diversions for the day. Others of us just simply drop everything in a pile, hodgepodge fashion, and race to be the first to dive through the waves. Our beach is a welcoming beach. We spend our day roasting first one side and then the other. 
we are innocently ignorant of the damage we are inflicting on our skin, reveling in that just-right, golden bronze look. Some of us play cards with friends, some of us build elaborate sandcastles, complete with fully operational moats alternatingly filled and drained by the ever-compliant waves. If the cooling breeze dies down, we stroll into the water and make our way out through the breakers to ride the newly forming swells. From the beach, our bobbing heads look like so many cupcakes lined up on a windowsill to cool. We tread water, occasionally kicking passing seaweed on its way to shore, until a warm towel in the sun sounds like a good idea again. Our beach is a playful beach. As the afternoon settles down around us like an old friend, we doze a while, read a while, and inventory the day's collection of shells. We select the shells that are rare finds to take home and put on our special seashell shelves. We all have a shelf or or a bookcase for our ever-growing displays. The rejected shells are scattered on the sand along the waterline for the next day's collector to find. Some of us spend this lazy afternoon time reminiscing about the school year just ended or speculating about who our teacher will be next year, what the new grade will be like, and if we will get to sit next to each other again. Very serious concerns to our young minds. Our beach is a peaceful beach. When the sun's rays come slanting across the water to us at a certain angle, we know it is time to begin packing up. Towels are shaken, cups and bottles emptied to lighten the load, trash is stashed, and bags consolidated to make the homeward trek easier. There's not much talking now as we realize with silent regret that the day at our beach is coming to an end. As we gather our possessions, our minds turn toward home. We look forward to cool showers, warm dinners, and soft sheets on crinkly skin. Finally, we turn our backs to the waves and trudge our way through the cooling sand. As we get to the bridge underpass, we feel as if we have left something important behind. We have. We've left behind a friend. Our beach. Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson is another one of those classics I did not read as a kid. (laughs) In fact, if you heard last podcast, you know anything other than Charlie Cockatoo visits the insect world. Anything other than that, I did not read, except I think The Great Gatsby I had to read in high school and then write a paper on what makes great books great. And I still don't know what made that book great or why it sells so much. But back to Robert Louis Stevenson and Treasure Island. I'll read one chapter this week, and then we'll keep going each podcast until we're done with all 34 chapters. This is Part 1, The Old Buccaneer. Chapter 1, The Old Sea Dog at the Admiral Benbow. Squire Trelawney, Dr. Livesey, and the rest of these gentlemen, having asked me to write down the whole particulars about Treasure Island, from the beginning to the end, keeping nothing back but the bearings of the island, and that only because there is still treasure not yet lifted, I take up my pen and go back to the time when my father kept the Admiral Benbow Inn, 
and the brown old seaman with the saber cut first mm. took up his lodging under our roof. I remember him as if it were yesterday, as he came plodding to the inn door, his sea chest following behind him in a handbarrow, a tall, strong, heavy, nut-brown man, his terry pigtail falling over the shoulders of his soiled blue coat, his hands ragged and scarred with black, broken nails, and the saber cut across one cheek, a dirty, livid white. I remember him looking round the cove and whistling to himself as he did so, and then breaking out in that old sea song that he sang so often afterwards. Fifteen men on the dead man's chest, yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. In the high, old, tottering voice that seemed to have been tuned and broken at the capstan bars. Then he rapped on the door with a bit of stick like a handspike that he carried, and when my father appeared, called roughly for a glass of rum. This, when it was brought to him, he drank slowly, like a connoisseur, lingering on the taste and still looking about him at the cliffs and up at our signboard. This is a handy cove, says he, at length, and a pleasant city-aided grog shop. Much company, mate? My father told him no, very little company, the more was the pity. Well then, said he, this is the berth for me. Hear you, matey, he cried to the man who trundled up the barrel. Bring up alongside and help up my chest. I'll stay here a bit, he continued. I'm a plain man. Rum and bacon and eggs is what I want. And that head up there for to watch ships off. What you mought call me? You mought call me captain. Oh, I see what you're at. There. And he threw down three or four gold pieces on the threshold. You can tell me when I've worked through that, says he, looking as fierce as a commander. And indeed, bad as his clothes were, and coarsely as he spoke, he had none of the appearance of a man who sailed before the mast, but seemed like a mate or skipper, accustomed to be obeyed or to strike. The man who came with the barrow told us the mail had set him down the morning before at the Royal George, that he had inquired what inns there were along the coast, and hearing ours well spoken of, I suppose, and described as lonely, had chosen it from the others for his place of residence, and that was all we could learn of our guest. He was a very silent man by custom. All day he, he hung around the cove or upon the cliffs with a brass telescope. All evening he sat in a corner of the parlor next to the fire, and drank rum and water very strong. Mostly he would not speak when spoken to, only look up sudden and fierce, and blow through his nose like a foghorn. And we and the people who came about our house soon learned to let him be. Every day when he came back from his stroll, he would ask if any seafaring man, uh, men had gone by along the road. At first we thought it was the want of company, of his own kind that made him ask this question. But at last we began to see he was desirous to avoid them. When a seaman put up at the Admiral Benbow, as now and then some did, making by the coast road for Bristol, he would look in at him through the curtained door before he entered the parlor. And as he was always sure to be as silent as a mouse when any such was present. 
For me, at least, there was no secret about the matter, for I was, in a way, a sharer in his alarms. He had taken me aside one day and promised me a silver fourpenny on the first of every month if I would only keep my weather eye open for a seafaring man with one leg and let him know the moment he appeared. Often enough, when the first of the month came round and I applied to him for my wage, he would only blow through his nose at me and stare me down. But before the week was out, he was sure to think better of it, bring me my fourpenny piece, and repeat his orders to look out for the seafaring man with one leg. How that personage haunted my dreams, I need scarcely tell you. On stormy nights, when the wind shook the four corners of the house and the surf roared along the cove and up the cliffs, I would see him in a thousand forms and with a thousand diabolical expressions. Now the leg would be cut off at the knee, now at the hip. Now he was a monstrous kind of a creature who had never had but one leg, and that in the middle of his body. To see him leap and run and pursue me over the hedge and ditch was the worst of nightmares, and altogether I paid pretty dear for my monthly fourpenny piece in the shape of these abominable fancies. But though I was so terrified by the idea of the seafaring man with one leg, I was far less afraid of the captain himself than anybody else who knew him. There were nights when he took a deal more rum and water than his head would carry, and then he would sometimes sit and sing his wicked old wild sea songs, minding nobody. But sometimes he would call for glasses round and force all the trembling company to listen to his stories or bear a chorus to his singing. Often I have heard the house shaking with Yo, ho, ho, and a bottle of rum, all the neighbors joining in for dear life with the fear of death upon them, and each singing louder than the other to avoid remark, for in these fits he was the most overriding companion ever known. He would slap his hand on the table for silence all round. He would fly up in a passion of anger at a question, or sometimes because none was put, and so he judged the company was not following his story nor would he allow anyone to leave the inn till he had drunk himself sleepy and reeled off to bed. His stories were what frightened people worst of all. Dreadful stories they were, about hanging and walking the plank and storms at sea and the dry tortugas and wild deeds and places on the Spanish main. By his own account, he must have lived his life among some of the wickedest men that God ever allowed upon the sea. And the language in which he told these stories shocked our plain country people almost as much as the crimes that he described. My father was always saying the inn would be ruined, for people would soon cease coming there to be tyrannized over and put down, and sent shivering to their beds. But I really believe his presence did us good. People were frightened at the time, but on looking back, they rather liked it. It was a fine excitement in a quiet country life. And there was even a party of the younger man who pretended to admire him, calling him a true sea dog and a real old salt, and such like names, and saying there was the sort of man that made England terrible at sea. In one way, indeed, he bade fair to ruin us, for he kept on staying week after week, and at last month after month, so that all the money had been long exhausted. And still my father never plucked up the heart to insist on having more. 
If ever he mentioned it, the captain blew through his nose so loudly that you might say he roared and stared my poor father out of the room. I have seen him wringing his hands after such a rebuff, and I am sure the annoyance and the terror he lived in must have greatly hastened his early and unhappy death. All the time he lived with us, the captain made no change whatever in his dress but to buy some stockings from a hawker. One of the cocks of his hat having fallen down, he let it hang from that day forth, though it was a great annoyance when it blew. I remember the appearance of his coat, which he patched himself upstairs in his room, and which, before the end, was nothing but patches. He never wore, uh, wrote, or received a letter, and he never spoke with any but the neighbors, and with these, for the most part, only when drunk on rum. The great sea chest none of us had ever seen open. He was only once crossed, and that was towards the end, when my poor father was far gone in a decline that took him off. Dr. Livesey came late one afternoon to see the patient, took a bit of dinner from my mother, and went into the parlor to smoke a pipe until his horse should come down from the hamlet, for we had no stabling at the old Benbow. I followed him in, and I remember observing the contrast, the neat, bright doctor, with his powder as white as snow, and his bright black eyes and pleasant manners, made with a coltish country folk, and above all, with that filthy, heavy, bleared scarecrow of a pirate of ours, sitting far gone in rum, with his arms on the table. Suddenly, he, the captain, that is, began to pipe up his eternal song. Fifteen men on the dead man's chest, yo-ho-ho, and a bottle of rum. Drink, and the devil had done for the rest. Yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. At first, I had supposed the dead man's chest to be that identical big box of his upstairs in the front room, and the thought had been mingled in my nightmares with that of the one-legged seafaring man. But by this time, we had all long ceased to pay any particular attention to the song. It was new that night to nobody but Dr. Livesey, and on him I observe it did not produce an agreeable effect for he looked up for a moment quite angrily before he went on with his talk to old Taylor, the gardener, on a new cure for the rheumatics. In the meantime, the captain gradually brightened up at his own music, and at last flapped his hand upon the table before him in a way we all knew to mean silence. The voices stopped at once, all but Dr. Livesey's. He went on as before, speaking clear and kind and drawing briskly at his pipe between every word or two. The captain glared at him for a while, flapped his hand again, glared still harder, and at last broke out with a villainous oath. Silence there, between decks! Were you addressing me, sir? says the doctor. And when the ruffian had told him, with another oath, that this was so, I have only one thing to say to you, sir replies the doctor, that if you keep on drinking rum, the world will soon be quit of a very dirty scoundrel. The old fellow's fury was awful. He sprang to his feet, drew and opened a sailor's clasp knife, and balancing it open on the palm of his hand, threatened to pin the doctor to the wall. The doctor never so much as moved. He spoke to him as before over his shoulder and in the same tone of voice, 
rather high so that all of Rome might hear, but perfectly calm and steady. If you do not put that knife this instant in your pocket, I promise upon my honor you shall hang at the next assizes. Then followed a battle of looks between them, but the captain soon knuckled under, put up his weapon, and resumed his seat, grumbling like a beaten dog. And now, sir, continued the doctor, since I now know there's such a fellow in my district, you may count I'll have an eye upon you day and night. I'm not a doctor only, I'm a magistrate. And if I catch a breath of complaint against you, if it's only for a piece of incivility like tonight's, I'll take effectual means to have you hunted down and routed out of this. Let that suffice. Soon after, Dr. Livesey's horse came to the door, and he rode away. But the captain held his peace that evening, and for many evenings to come. It's been a long, long time since I read Treasure Island. So I think I'm going to enjoy this, and I think um, the rest of you will also. Many of you are probably like me. It's been a long time since you've read the book, or maybe you never read it at all. So come back next week for Chapter 2. We're going to take a moment here to talk a little bit about our own writing. And because I'm the one speaking right now, I get to ask the first question. Steve. Can you remember what first interested you in writing poetry? When I was in about third grade, third or fourth grade, we got the Weekly Reader, which was kind of a newspaper-like four-page publication. And it usually had a a poem, a limerick, by Ogden Nash. Uh, And I enjoyed reading those. I didn't have, uh, I don't know that I had a particular interest in writing them. But I like to copy them and, uh, you know, write them on paper. And then uh, I suppose that helped me remember. I don't know. I had, I used to collect sayings and and poems back then. In fact, I still remember one of his poems. Um, Ogden Nash wrote, Some primal termite knocked on wood and tasted it and found it good. And that is why your cousin May fell through the parlor floor today. (laughs) Which I still enjoy. That's a good one. (laughs) So, um, yeah, that's one I remember. And from back then, I remember another one that I don't know who wrote it, and I haven't been able to find the author. But it goes like this. When I am at a football game and wishing hard to win it, with eyes glued on the struggling heap, there comes an awful minute. When on the ground a helmet rolls, it's then there comes that minute. When I am quite afraid to look, for fear a head is in it. (laughs) That's what I think of when I see a football game. So, um, yeah, I guess that's it. It was just way back I took an interest in in poetry. So, uh, 
what was that fire engine one? Was that about that same era? It's not really a poem, but it's, I think it was off a Three Stooges gum card. <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, you have to get the best education, you know. Uh, that's why are fire engines red? Fire engines are red because two plus two is four. Three times four is 12. 12 inches, there are 12 inches in a ruler. Queen Elizabeth was a ruler and also a boat. The boat sails on the sea. The sea has fishes. The fishes have fins. The fins fought the Russians. And that's why fire engines are red, because they're Russian all over. Uh, I'm not real sure what to say after that. <laughs> deep, deep. <laughs> yeah. Some people just won't get that. <laughs> uh, so... Um, <laughs> Now that we know where your love of poetry started, tell us more about your writing over the years or today. What kind of poems do you write? I try to write mostly silly ones because um, I grew up with the Three Stooges. <laughs> this one I called Doll. I bought my little girl a doll, and she had quite the notion to take her brand new plaything to the beach, right on the ocean. It looked just like a mermaid does, with head and tail and torso. She hoped that it could swim as well as sea maids, maybe more so. She ran up to the water's edge and flung that thing, a toss in, then speeding toward us, it's a shark! Or was it just a doll fin? Another one, humpbacks, these silly old people who go to the ocean in seaworthy vessels and make a commotion by searching for humpbacks, recording their noises. The whales vent their babble with submarine voices. I'm not scientific. I don't have much schooling, but experts say humpbacks are talking or cooing. They misunderstand, so this fact I'm unveiling. What else would be heard if not whales that are wailing? And then, then one more. Uh, surfers. We owned a snack shack on the beach and served the surfers' faves. Although they didn't come at once, they always came in waves. Now it's my turn to ask you some questions. When did you get your first inspiration or want to be a writer? Well, as I've said before, I love to read. Have, I have loved reading since, probably since that first um, Dick and Jane and Spot book in first grade. And I'm sure that all those books I read were, the, were what triggered my desire to write my own stories. And that was... Um, in younger years, you know, I, I did the usual thing of writing with pencil and lined paper and uh, not only writing the stories but illustrating them with crayons and colored pencils with my extremely limited artistic ability. But um, amongst the stories that I was reading back then were two, uh, I was probably a little older when I read them, about girl reporters and I found those pretty fascinating. And then as 
time went on, when we had writing assignments in school, I I always enjoyed those. I didn't dread them like some of my friends, and um, like the challenge of writing and learning how to write. I received English and literature awards in junior high and high school. But the crazy thing, when I went to college, I went to a school that didn't offer any related subject, no creative writing classes, no journalism classes, um, nothing like that. The good news is that's where you and I met. Um, We won't say how many years ago, but a long time ago. And (laughs) We met at the mailboxes, and that's where she found her mail. (laughs) I don't think you have permission to interrupt me. (laughs) Anyway, um, that's uh, where we met and how our how we eventually married. And three years later, had our first child. Oh my! And probably six months later, I saw an ad in the paper for a creative writing class at the local community college. Took that class. And following that, many others, uh, seminars, conferences, uh, read how-to books. And that began um, my search for learning the craft of writing and, um, what's the word, not perfecting, but uh, becoming a better writer. And I began writing short stories and articles and did quite a few of those over the years. And more recently, I've been writing books. Now I have five of them published. Why don't you tell us about the five? Let's see if I can remember. (laughs) The first one, a very fun project with Larry Baker, who was my hair cutter. And he and I... uh, collaborated on a book called It's the God Thing, Inspiring Stories of Life-Changing Friendships, which talked about his unofficial ministry, uh, befriending uh, pretty much college-age kids in Old Town, Fort Collins, and just being a big brother to them. So he had some great stories that he was telling me each time I cut my hair, and finally we said, you know, we need to write these down. So that's how It's a God Thing came to be. And then Larry introduced me to uh, the founder and director of Freedom Fellowship, a prison ministry in uh, Colorado. And I talked to them about a book, and over a matter of months, I got to go to prison and jail, halfway houses, and interview uh, people who had come to know the Lord and had their lives changed, and just that was really an exciting time. And that book is called On a Wing and a Prayer, Stories from Freedom Fellowship, a Prison Ministry. And I remember, it was fun for me, when people would call on the phone, ask for you. I'd say, I'm sorry, she's not here, she's in prison. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure you found great pleasure in doing that. (laughs) So those are my two nonfiction books. Since then, I've been writing a series about women who get out of prison and go to Wyoming to start new lives. And 
of course, Trouble Finds Them in Wyoming also. Um, that's two books now, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom. The third book is nearing completion, and it's titled Winds of Change. Oh, and I forgot, a short story collection I did with uh, my critique partners came out a year and a half ago or so now. Uh, That one is titled Passageways. That's a collection of 16 short stories, and they're all, all just pretty fun stories. They are. I like that one. Okay, thanks, Becky. Now we're going to hear Becky Reed from Winds of Wyoming, her first in the series. We're now all the way up to Chapter 9. Kate and Mike slid from Old Blue's passenger door as Clint stepped slowly around the pickup, examining it. Good thing you were in your dad's rig, Duncan. A newer model couldn't take a blow like that with all the plastic they use these days. Mike nodded. I told Kate this is the truck that keeps on trucking. Mike turned to her. Have you met Clint Barrett? He's our ranch foreman and head wrangler. She smiled at the stocky, dark-haired man. He looked about her age, and she noticed he wasn't wearing a wedding ring. We met at the breakfast, she said. Clint shook her hand. The pleasure is mine, again. He adjusted his hat. Ready to roll, boss? uh, I mean, Mike? Where's the cow? Clear up at the northeast corner of the pasture, Clint said. Do you want to ride together? We might need both vehicles. Mike headed for his truck. You lead the way. Clint whispered in Kate's ear. I'm amazed at how calm he is about the dead cow. When it comes to buffalo, you can get riled up over an ingrown nose hair. She giggled. Maybe that's why his mom wanted me to ride down here with him. Mrs. D is a smart lady. Kate rode with Mike up the hill. She made no attempt to interrupt his thoughts as they bumped toward the fallen bison. He couldn't have heard her anyway, above the creak of the truck's worn-out joints and the clatter of boards and wire bouncing in the bed of the pickup. She stared at the enormous animals grazing near the fence they followed. With their huge shoulder humps and curved horns, the bison looked to her like lopsided leftovers from the Ice Age. Though their hindquarters were slender, they had massive hairy heads and wide chests. How much did they weigh? Had to be hundreds of pounds. As if he'd read her mind, Mike said, Yep, they're as big as they look. Bison are the largest land mammals in North America. He talked above the noise. The cows can reach eight feet in length, weigh around a thousand pounds, and stand as high as five feet at the shoulder. I've heard of bulls that were twelve feet long and six and a half feet tall. Those guys weigh twice as much as cows, up to twenty-two hundred pounds. He pointed toward a big brown lump on the ground ahead. There she is, with the calf standing beside her. The forlorn calf, its dark nose in the air, bellowed the loss of its mother, halting its cry of abandonment only long enough to nuzzle her cold bag and lifeless teats. Poor baby. Kate stared at the calf. Her heart hurt for the little creature. It was all alone. She knew how that felt. Pardon? 
I feel sorry for the calf, Kate said. Some reprehensible person destroyed everything good about its young life, its only source of food and nurturing. Yeah, I don't understand how anyone could be so cruel, if the cow really was shot, that is. He turned off the engine and sat quietly, just looking at her. Kate squirmed. Did you want to say something? His serious expression dissolved into a grin. Just that I can't get out until you get out. Oh, she snickered. Sorry. Still laughing, they joined Clint at the fence, standing on each side of him. Clint elbowed Kate. You must be a magician. His voice was barely a murmur. He's actually smiling. She grinned. After the rough ride up the hill, every bruise and scrape throbbed. But Clint's friendly camaraderie made her feel accepted and appreciated, like one of the crew. He motioned toward the cow. Want to drive in to take a look at her, Mike? Mike studied the pasture, his gaze shifting back and forth. The rest of the herd is a way off, which is a good thing, he said, but it won't be long before they come over to check us out or to protect that calf. Our first priority is to get it out of there and put some food in its stomach. We lost the last calf we tried to bottle feed. He sighed. The one that got separated from its mother when we moved the herd last spring. This one's only a couple weeks old, so maybe it'll be okay. He looked around Clint to Kate. After we load the calf into the truck, would you mind driving it to the barn? I'll radio Mom so she can warm some milk. I'd be glad to. Kate was happy she could do something to help the pitiful, hungry beast. But I've never driven a truck before. Know how to shift gears? My Honda has a manual shift. Good. You know how to use a clutch. It'll just take a couple minutes for you to get a feel for old blues gears. He clasped Clint's shoulder. Have your rope with you, bud? You bet. This is a perfect opportunity to show off your calf roping skills. Clint laughed. Not much of a challenge. The critter just stands there wailing its head off. What's your plan? Well, I can't believe I'm dumb enough to use a truck again, but unless you have a better idea, let's drive our pickups in front of the cow and form a V aimed at the herd to block their view while you rope the calf's legs. If we're lucky, it won't run too far from the cow, and you can get a good shot at it. Kate can man the gate. Kate stuck her hands in her back pockets. This is probably a dumb question, but why are you roping its legs instead of its head? Mike smiled. That's a good question, not a dumb one. You wouldn't think it to look at them, but a bison's esophagus is twice the size of a beef animal and closer to the surface, so roping around the neck is dangerous. Plus, buffalo tend to run up the rope toward the roper instead of away, like a cow would. He adjusted his hat and looked at Clint. I'll help you tie the legs and toss it in the truck. Kate can haul it to the ranch while we deal with the sheriff or the vet or maybe both. We'll decide who to call after we check out the cow. It's a plan, Stan, said Clint. Good thing we put a gate in at that corner. Mike nodded. How about you drive Kate to the gate and show her how to operate it while I unload the stuff in the back of Old Blue? Clint and Kate jounced a short distance to the fence corner and got out. He led her to two posts at one end of the gate. Smooth wires attached to the top and bottom of the larger post were looped around the smaller one. This isn't rocket science. He raised the top loop off the smaller pole, then lifted the pole from the bottom loop. 
You just have to be careful not to tangle with the barbs when you move the gate. He pointed at the four strands of barbed wire strung from a stationary post at the other end of the gate to the post he held in his hands. They'll eat you alive. Kate wrinkled her nose. They look nasty. Don't the barbs hurt the animals? That's the idea. Keeps them from trying to get out and discourages predators from getting in. We also run electricity through the top wire. She backed away. Patterson Prison had used electric fencing. He chuckled. Don't worry, the gate's not wired, and the current in the fence won't injure or kill livestock. It just gives them a zap. Patterson's stunned lethal fence supposedly delivered a shock on first contact and a fatal jolt if immediately touched again. She'd wondered for years what would keep a stunned person from falling into the wire and being electrocuted. Is the electricity really necessary? Buffalo are strong, agile, and fast. Even though they look clumsy, they can jump or break through ordinary cattle fencing. He tapped the top of the pole. That's why this fence is six feet tall. They can also sprint to 30 miles an hour from a dead stop and pivot on a dime. With their hind feet and their front feet, he raised his eyebrows. They're amazing animals and a challenge to control, especially if they get loose. He dragged the pole several feet from the fence. That's how he opened the gate. He hauled it back. To close the gate, place the bottom of the pole into the lower loop, then stand it flush against the other post so you can drop the upper wire over it. He grunted as he shoved the pole upright and even with the taller post then flipped the loop down. He stepped back. Think you can handle that? Mm-hmm. She made a mental note to buy work gloves the next time she was in town. Clint unhooked the gate again and pulled it wide so Mike could drive through and park near the downed cow. Then he handed the pole to Kate, got in his pickup, and followed. After angling headlight to headlight with Mike's vehicle, he grabbed a coil of rope from the bed and strode toward the calf, which had scuttled away but was circling back. Kate lugged the heavy gate toward the fence, trying to watch the herd and the man at the same time. She wanted to see how they handled the distraught newborn. The calf wobbled away from them, but then reversed again, obviously torn between staying with its mother and running to safety. Arm in the air, Clint rotated a wide rope loop that suddenly snaked from his hand to slither under the calf's feet and snare both back legs. He jerked the lariat and the calf flipped onto its side. The bison hit the ground with a grunt. Mike grabbed its front legs. With the free end of the rope, Clint tied one front leg to the tethered back legs and sprang to his feet, hands high. Fastest bison ropers in the West. Kate laughed. Maybe Wyoming men weren't so bad after all. Maybe, just maybe, she'd overreacted to the barn incident. She dropped the bottom of the pole into the loop, trying not to think about how much her hands hurt. With every ounce of strength she had, she set the pole upright and reached for the top wire. That concludes this podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckylyles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.